Hello and welcome to episode three of our mini-series, The Driving Force, where we're exploring what really is driving sustainability in industry. This podcast is brought to you by Tribosonics. Tribosonics is a transformational hard-tech technology business using its unique sensing technologies to create value and drive sustainability for its global industrial customers. And we are your hosts, myself, Christina King, Chief Commercial Officer, and... Mark Wallace, Chief Operating Officer. On today's podcast, we're very pleased to welcome Michelle Lynch. Michelle Lynch is a PhD in chemicals and catalysis and fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. Her 26 years of postdoctoral experience span catalyst R&D, catalyst and precious metals market research, patent analysis and consulting. She is currently the director and owner of Enabled Futures Limited. Prior to setting up Enabled Futures, Michelle worked with IHS, now S&P Global, Nexent, and Johnson Mathey. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for coming to join us today. Thank you. It was nice to be here. <laughs> so, Michelle, can you explain to the listeners who Enabled Future Limited is and what they do? Okay, so thank you. So Enabled Future Limited is my company that I set up just over six years ago in 2016. And I started the company because I'd had a long period in industry as part of my career, as you mentioned. Um, I started actually in a laboratory making chemicals, making these special catalyst materials I'm going to tell you a bit more about later. And then I went into market research and I learned a lot about more about how catalysts are sold, what they're used for in industry, how they're used to make fine chemicals. And then I moved to a market research um, function, which was purely about precious metals, about what we call platinum group metals, PGM. And the interesting thing about PGM is they're used across lots of different sectors. So, for instance, they're used in the automotive sector, used in refining, used in electronics. And so I got to go around and visit a lot of companies. So I built up skills and ability to do primary market research. Then I moved to this information science function where I learned about patents, as you said, and lots of other ways of gathering information from secondary databases. So I had a, a kind of set of skills, which was primary research, a set of skills, which was secondary research. And I learned a lot about low carbon technology in that information science function. So that was my first exposure to working on projects relating to CO2 capture and conversion biofuels and other low carbon technologies, which I really enjoyed. And then I kind of took an about turn, one of a few, and went into consulting, joined London firms, so I joined Nexent first. And um, then my mindset was kind of renewed to look at the industry as a set of chemical value chains. So the industry of chemicals starts with really about seven or eight important platform chemicals. And they start as quite inexpensive, relatively inexpensive per tonne. So you know, if you look at oil and gas and biomass and coal, they start off at one value and then you start adding value to them as you go along. So you turn them into a small building block that's used to make plastics and that adds quite a few dollars per tonne and then you make them into a plastic or you actually make them into a polymer first. You make them into a polymer resin and then that's more expensive and then you take that polymer and you convert it into a plastic through different downstream processes. And again, each stage you add value and you add cost. And I did a lot of projects involved in looking at how that was done at the techno economics, how much they cost to make, why they cost that much. 
which is all absolutely fascinating. And I really enjoyed that um, period of, of my time in my career. I went to IHS after that, did a lot more intensive work around market studies and supply, demand and trade, and really understood how chemicals and plastics get traded around the world and why. So, you know, why would one region particularly favour one product and why would another region want to import it from them and things like this. And so, as I said, around about 2016, I found myself wanting to do something different. I found that although I'd learned an enormous amount of really interesting things about the chemical industry, I wanted to bring back some of those original expertise that I'd built up before. And I was very interested in the growing moves towards sustainability and to more efficient ways of making things. And I had this idea in my head that I wanted my own company. And I remember one day at my desk coming up with the company name and coming up with the company Twitter handle. And not long after that, I told them, look, I really need to go and do this. So wish them well and began Enabled Future Limited. And um, we started off really looking at catalysts. That's always been my core area. And it was a very easy one to begin and to get work there and to start writing articles. And I was actually very interested in that at that point in process efficiency and in how the industry was moving into industry 4.0. So using sensors, for instance, and robotics and AI, 3D printing. However, around about that time, 2016-17, if you cast your mind back, climate change, um, climate action, these type of words were really becoming more high profile. And as I said, back in 2007 was the first time I actually looked at carbon capture and low carbon. So it, it was it was interesting because we, we, we had the banking crisis and it really killed off a lot of the activity, to be honest, there just wasn't the business case there to do it. But, but it started to become more prominent. So I steered Enabled Future in that direction. And I did a lot of research around low carbon technologies. And then it just grew into a, a passion for me and an urgency that I knew that this was a sector that needed to be tackled. And so we started to include more circular economy projects, more sustainability projects. And then again, around about 2018, the electrification revolution was becoming clear to me and the importance of electric mobility. And so I started to branch into more power-based technologies, including on one hand, fuel cells and electrolyzers that are used to make and use hydrogen, either in the energy sector or in the chemical sector. And then batteries. It's a big remit, but they seem like such different industries and people think, are we either going to do hydrogen or you're going to do batteries? Actually, we're doing both. And actually, each of those helps the other. And battery materials became another great subject for me. It's kind of my, I call it my second love after catalysts. And so now what we have are kind of those three big verticals, the catalyst, the circular economy and the batteries. And what also then became clear was that we have a big resource problem. So we need all of these minerals and metals and polymers and plastics to make the energy transition and the future decarbonized earth work. And so I kind of came up with a fourth area, which sits over the others, which is how do we manage the resources? And so a lot of what I do actually is look at how do we get enough metals for batteries and fuel cells? How do we find other ways of improving them so that you don't need as much metal even though the part of the system you've worked on is not the metal, but you've enabled it to work better without quite as much. And so what we do essentially is we write reports and studies 
we provide training, um, we write content and we do industry tracking. And what this allows our customers to do is to gather those deep technology and economic insights and plan their technology investments because I think you can tell even from the discussion so far, it's dizzying, it's it's confusing. There are lots and lots of different companies in this sector and an investor has to now, rather than just say, well, which fossil fuel-based gasoline plant do I invest my money in? They now have to look and say, well, I want to be more sustainable, I want to be green, but where do I start with this enormous array of technologies? So we help them with that. We help to segment the industry and to explain which technologies are more ready than others and which are more promising potentially than others. So it's very helpful to the investment community. Um, Of course, it's very helpful to the chemical industry and to people coming up with processes. So it's used, for instance, for R&D planning other area is um, sector messaging. So for instance, you have stakeholder organisations involved in planning, government spending, and with memberships like, for instance, institutes that represent the platinum industry or the nickel industry or such like. So we offer studies to all of those different areas. And yeah, so the end result is for a company that's still relatively young and still relatively small, We've reached a whole range of different organisations on lots of different topics. And um, it's, there's certainly never a dull moment and two days never the same. And the, the name of the company is very much aligned, Enabled Future, very much aligned with some of the areas you're working in, battery being such a key part of moving automotive forward in, in sustainability. You mentioned hydrogen, where we're sat today. I can think of two electrolyzer factories within probably a 20 mile radius of here where where does catalyst technology and the future of catalyst technology fit in in electrolyzers excellent question um if i go back a little bit to the beginning of well not quite to the beginning of catalyst that's probably like 200 years ago but catalysts essentially are not new materials they've been around for a long time they're hidden away even though they're incredibly valuable and we would not have any of the chemical manufacturing that we have today without them. So they're materials that are either solids, so they come in the form of powders or pellets and different shapes, or they're liquids, and they play a role essentially to get um, a chemical reaction to proceed at lower temperatures and pressures and at a faster rate than if they weren't there. They also have inherently green benefits. For instance, they increase the yield of the product. So if you're taking kind of reactant A and you want to turn it into reactant B in a perfect world, you would get your maximum yield of B. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. You end up with C, D and E. And if those aren't valuable to sell, then you have to treat them as waste, for instance. And you might only be able to do something like burn them as fuel, which is very low value. So a catalyst enables you to make chemicals at a lower cost and a higher yield. They reduce waste and they also replace things like liquid acids and corrosive substances and less green substances. And so, again, you get another area of sort of high carbon and high waste materials taken out of the chemical manufacturing equation. And catalysts, people probably know catalysts best from a car. So in your in your car's automotive converter, if you still have an internal combustion engine car, which most of us actually do, then there's a catalyst sitting in that exhaust pipe and the gases from your 
exhaust of the engine are going over that catalyst at high temperature and pressure and converting into less harmful substances. They take unburnt fuel, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides and such like, and they turn them into basically CO2, water and nitrogen. And we hear a lot about automotive catalysts actually because it gets stolen a lot. Mm, so of the precious metals, isn't it? Indeed. They're, they're used precious metals and they're, they're very valuable and there's a recycling industry built around that value chain. If we take the thought of what they're doing in your exhaust pipe and, and, and translate that to a chemical plant where you might have a big unit that's making some very common chemicals like methanol or ammonia or um, things like xylenes, aromatic molecules, which end up in your coat bottles and your clothes. So they're just sitting in a big unit either as a powder or as a, these little fixed bed pellets and gases and liquids flow over them and turn into the products. The other type I mentioned where you have like essentially a catalyst dissolved in a liquid, they're mainly used for things like making certain types of polymers and in production of certain fine chemicals. So catalysts come in different types, solids and liquids. They also come in the form of enzymes, like what we call biocatalysts, little bugs. And bugs are very clever at doing what they do in nature, so turning things like sugar molecules into kind of bigger natural products. The fourth type of catalyst is an electrocatalyst. In a, in a fuel cell under an electrolyzer, so you need to perform reduction and oxidation reactions. So if you're starting hydrogen in a fuel cell car, and you're going to turn that into water and energy, because essentially what hydrogen is is an energy carrier. It's like a charged battery, and water is a low energy molecule. It's very stable. And the catalyst helps you get to basically go from hydrogen to energy and water in an efficient way, um, it delivers essentially the electrons into the right places at the right rate and it's coated onto a kind of a membrane. So in a fuel cell, it's like a layered structure and in the very heart of the fuel cell, you have this basically a, uh, a polymeric membrane and then you have a catalyst coating on either side of that. Um, so the role it's playing essentially is to get the efficiency and the rate that's required um, to make it worthwhile to have for instance, a hydrogen fuel cell. And then in the opposite direction, you've got taking water and making it into the hydrogen. And it's very similar. The system is very similar. But the main difference is, is that the precious metals are different. So on a, on a fuel cell, you need platinum mainly. In an electrolyzer, you need platinum and iridium. Which sound quite precious metals. And the really question yeah. that comes in there, is it is it sustainable for the future, those types of technologies? Because it sounds very green when you describe the process and how that works. Sounds fantastic. But what about the component parts that make up that that fuel cell? Absolutely. It's, it's an excellent question. And I, I think that one of the ways to look at resource criticality there are several ways to look at it. So people talk about resource criticality in terms of, oh, well, that resource comes from all one country um, or two or three countries. And um, there might be geopolitical issues that make it kind of worrying that it only comes from those countries. That's true. So what we need is a good plan for using those resources very pragmatically and essentially using as little of them as possible to begin with. And when you look at the fuel cell car, so I don't know if you've ever seen the Toyota Mirai up close, a fantastic vehicle made by Toyota, and they modelled this vehicle. Essentially, the technology early on came from a lot of the improvements they made to their mild hybrid technology. And in the mild hybrid technology, you have a battery, actually a nickel metal hydride battery, it's not lithium battery. 
um, in the older Toyotas, for instance, and they took some of the engineering and the process improvements they made with that and into the first type of Mirai. So originally the Mirai had um, a fuel cell and a nickel metal hydride battery. The brand new Mirais have a fuel cell and a lithium ion battery, which comes back to what I said earlier about how fuel cells and lithium batteries are not mutually exclusive. They work in, in tandem in a lot of um, applications. On the fuel cell, the original amount of platinum was around about 35 grams. It's a bit over what we call in the precious metal industry a troy ounce. A troy ounce is around about 30, 31, 32 grams. And if you compare that to a diesel vehicle of about the same size, there's maybe four grams of platinum, four or five grams. Of, that's a, a, an estimate. It's not a, don't, don't hold me to it. <laughs> and are you perfect. talking there about the catalytic converter or, or more widely spread than that? Just in the catalytic converter. Okay. Um, and so clearly 30 grams is too much. Um, platinum is a finite resource. Um, you can dig more of it out of the ground, and we will, um, but then you're increasing the criticality. So, and it's very expensive to put, you know, that much PGM on a vehicle. Um, although to be fair, the rest of the fuel cell has a lot of expensive parts as well. And the Mirai was retailing, I think it was something like 55,000 pounds not so long ago. Won't be getting one of them soon then. <laughs> but it is, it is an amazing vehicle. Um, but if that's the first one, the technology kind of develops and the cost goes down, they'll be they'll be wanted to get it to the mass market. Exactly. So the the amount on there now is 15 grams. So I'm, I spoke with World Platinum Investment Council have given me a view of 15 grams per, per vehicle. We need it to get down even further and we're looking to go down to below 10 grams and if you can get down to five grams, then you are then on a level with, with a diesel vehicle. So one of the ways that we deal with it essentially is to thrift that metal down as much as possible. One of the second ways you'd have to deal with it is thinking about how you can get as much of that metal back. So in the automotive catalyst sector, it's a very mature industry with a recycling function built around it. And, and this is a very important concept that when you're going to have a new industry of any sort, whether it's an energy industry or anything involving the use of natural resources, having a waste and a recycling plan already in place before you mass scale it is the right thing to do. We can talk a bit about that in terms of other types of products, but if we just focus on things like the fuel cell, there are several companies involved in creating fuel cell recycling at scale. And so, for instance, Umicore, have announced Umicore's a major producer of precious metal chemicals and catalysts and battery materials. And they've just announced a plant in China which will recycle fuel cells at scale. There are other companies like Hensel Recycling in Germany who are working on this and they're working as part of European consortium to improve the way that things are recycled, to improve the efficiency. That's really interesting because it's like they're, they're developed, it's not kind of developing their own products and then we sell it to the customer and forget about it. It's they're giving, you know, the end of life of that component a, a route to go to make it sustainable. And is that is that because they're driven by regulation or is it, you know, I'm assuming is it a profit thing? <laughs> what, how, why, what is it, you know, what, what do you think the reason is? I think it's a mixture. Um, certainly where precious metals are concerned, we always want to have the ability to get them back because one of the value. Two, we want to reduce the CO2 footprint associated with the precious metals industry. It obviously takes a lot of carbon dioxide and, and other life cycle factors to mine a metal out of the ground, whether that's a platinum group metal or a base metal or 
what have you. So there is a social responsibility and ESG responsibility to do that. So do they actually, so it sounds like is the ultimate that you could actually get a fully kind of recycled product that just goes round a few times. So I can absolutely see why they'd have that kind of uh, process at the end because they recover some of their metals, they can sell them back in the industry and they, they can control that kind of circularity, I suppose. Is that is that where they're aiming to get to? Yes, precisely right. And metals really are the perfect example of the circular economy. And again, it's 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 not a new concept. And um, oh, is it is it endless? Can they? Because obviously, plastic. Some plastics you can only recycle a certain number of times. But how does it work then with the metals? So the metals, what you can collect and process, you'll generally get at least, depending on the particular product and the process, you should be aiming for at least ninety seven percent. Um, but you have to be able to collect it. And, and some of the problems happen, for instance, an automotive catalyst, it shakes while you're driving and it shakes and it creates dust and some of that dust ends up over on the road. So we lose a certain percentage of the metal there. You might lose a little bit in manufacturing. You might lose a little bit in refining. Uh, but one of the key things is being able to collect. If you don't collect, if you dismantle the car and crush the car and incinerate it without taking the catalyst off, which can happen, then you don't get the metal back. Uh, so, Michelle, you tell us a little bit about what it means to be carbon neutral from from your perspective, and and particularly, uh, be interesting to hear about how catalysts are helping us on that journey towards carbon neutrality. Sure, carbon neutrality is a word that we're hearing very often alongside words like net zero. I think it's a, it sounds like a very simple concept. It sounds like everyone can say, I feel great about using this item because it's carbon neutral. It was made using a net zero process. It's perfect. I can have as many of these as I like. One of the things that people need to consider is just because something's carbon neutral or it fits with net zero doesn't mean it was produced according to a circular economy approach because you can burn down every tree on the planet and be carbon neutral but clearly burning down every tree on the planet wouldn't involve any sustainability or circular economy. So we need to be quite cautious. And I would encourage anyone to go away and have a bit more of a read about carbon neutrality and you know whether it really helps us to be more sustainable. Because essentially what you're talking about is over the life cycle of a product, the amount of CO2 is zero. So for instance, the easiest way to understand that is growing a biomass, like growing plants and, and such like. When you're growing a plant, Photosynthesis occurs, CO2 goes into the structure of the plant, forms natural polymers, for instance. And then if you make that biomass into a biofuel and then you burn the biofuel like ethanol or biodiesel, um, it emits CO2. And the idea is that the amount of CO2 that goes in balances the amount of CO2 that comes out. One of the other ways of looking at it is what we're seeing at the moment where you continue to use natural gas or oil or coal. And when you make the product, any CO2 that's emitted is captured and, for instance, reused in a product or buried underground or in a sea cavern. That's as well, that's not circular economy. That's a linear process. The CO2 isn't coming back up above ground to be reused. I mean, some of it, technically, you could put it in long-term storage and then use it. I don't think that's the model that most of us are looking at with net zero. So... That's what carbon neutrality means. Also, it's worth understanding how it's expressed. 
because there's slightly different terms that mean slightly different things. You've got carbon neutrality. You've also got a term called global warming potential, which is it kind of relates to specific things like CO2 or methane or others, and it's measured over a period of years. So if you compare CO2 to methane over a period of 100 years, methane is something like a 30 times more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And if you compare it over 20 years, it's something like 100 times more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So everyone's talking about CO2, but methane is actually a lot more of a concern? Not as much of it gets as emitted. We have methane emissions mainly from things like oil and gas production, and there are, there are some methane emissions associated with mining, with coal mining, with, with metal mining. So it it should be a concern. But, um, but by volume, it's, it's, less, it's, it's uh, less. less of a concern, but it is a lot more potent than, than CO2. Yes. And do they currently, they must manage that then that's emitted? Um, not, not well. Um, oh. Not well. The, the, the options when you're emitting methane, for instance, in an oil and gas operation are to just let it go out into the air without any action, um, in which case you've got that very potent gas. You can flare it and you can turn it into CO2, in which case you reduce the global warming potential considerably, but it's still going out as a flared gas. Ideally, what you would do is capture the methane and actually use that or failing that. One of the things you can do there is you can actually use the methane to run a turbine or to run an engine and you can at least get some power and heat out of it. And that, that's that's a technology that exists. If you don't do that, or even if you do do that, you've still got CO2 emissions. So you could do with capturing that and doing something with it. And how, when you capture the CO2 emissions, what, what can you use that for then? How, do, how can you use that? You can use it for lots of different things. You can actually use CO2 for a lot of things without actually changing it at all. So CO2 gets used in electronics applications. It gets used inside greenhouses to make um, flowers and fruit and vegetables grow faster. Um, it gets used if you've, you know, like breakfast crumpets and little holes in the crumpets. You blow CO2 gas through the dough. What? I like crumpets. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to be eating them again now. <laughs> and so you, you can just sell CO2, actually. And in fact, there is a market for CO2 such that we end up with shortages. So, for instance, during the World Cups, we always end up with this shortage. We haven't got enough CO2 for your beer. Um, and, and you know, carbonated drinks. Well, if you tell everybody that that there's not enough CO two for beer and it can be transformed for that that market, then surely it's, that's a that's an obvious one. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there are a few stages that need to be done. You need to make it pure enough, for instance, to be used in food and beverage applications or in high purity electronics manufacture. So you do need to do quite a lot of work to purify it. Other than that, the newer sort of sectors involving co2 capture and conversion are looking to make it into platform building block chemicals so i mentioned before there are about seven or eight things like methanol you can make co2 into methanol just by tweaking the chemistry tweak the catalyst tweak the process and there are lots of companies around the world coming up with processes there there's a company called carbon recycling international based in iceland who've been working on this for quite a long time and they now have several demo plants in China and in Europe. And essentially what you're doing is you're taking the CO2 and you're combining it with green hydrogen. So hydrogen you make from electrolysis is referred to as green hydrogen. And you take that with the CO2 and you can make that into green methanol. And there's a big market for that because methanol used to be used for basically a, a different set of chemicals. Like in the, in the methanol value chain, you've got acetic acid and various others. So it was kind of just like a, a good all-round chemical. 
now what we're looking to use it for is something like powering ships um, and powering. You, you can actually add it. We talk about um, having ethanol in gasoline. You can actually add methanol to gasoline as well. If you look at the codes for biofuels, if you've got, say, 10% ethanol in a gasoline mix, it's called E10. And if you've got 20%, it's E20. You'll actually see some countries where they're quite used to adding methanol and it will say like M10 or something like this. You can add actually methanol and ethanol too. So methanol is an interesting chemical because it's both used in the chemical industry, but it's used in the energy industry too. And it's one of the key kind of approaches to achieving energy transition because over time we can electrify vehicles we can electrify house domestic heating um it's not so easy to immediately electrify ships because they're so big and to electrify heavy duty equipment is isn't quite so easy either so things things like um chemicals you can make with co2 helpful there you can also take the green methanol and you can use a process from ExxonMobil to turn the methanol into gasoline and so there's a project the HIF project in Chile um, involving um, making green methanol and then using Exxon's methanol to hydrocarbon technology to turn it into a range of different liquid transportation fuels. And throughout all of these processes you've discussed I suspect that catalysts are are everywhere and not just everywhere, but they are the enabling technology behind a lot of these processes. Absolutely. Um, and you know, catalysts, as I said, they've been around for a long time. And um, one of the things that some of my associates will really try to impress upon people is that the chemical industry has been working on sustainability for a very long time. And you know, most of the big important chemical processes that were used to make basic chemicals and plastics and polymers were around before about 1970. Yeah, there was a huge period of kind of innovation between just before the First World War and then that post-Second World War period. And people came up with things like Tupperware. So we're having Tupperware parties, um, nylon stockings, um, rubber for tyres, for automotive tyres, plexiglass used, you know, clear screens on, on aircraft and on your telephones. And so... We've been at this for quite a long time, and especially when the industry grew. So the industry had this enormous, fantastic double-digit growth up until about late 70s, and then it started to have to consolidate, became mature, and you know, market economics being what they were. There was consolidation, people trying to still get that growth, and people who weren't so good at things kind of dropped away or were acquired or, or, or went bankrupt. And if you look at how chemicals are made, from a techno-economic standpoint, You've got most of the cost is on your raw material and then some of the cost is on your utilities, your gas, your electric, your water, etc. And then the rest of the cost is kind of um, overheads, labour, plant depreciation. For every 1% improvement you can make in the production of a chemical, for instance, if a chemical costs $1,000 per tonne to make and you were selling it for $1,500 a tonne and you're making about half a million tonnes of it, you bring the cost of production down by $10, you make an extra $5 million on your bottom line. And so if your catalyst enables you to make that 1% improvement in yield, because it will generally be that cost coming down will partly be because your yields improved and therefore you need fewer tonnes of your starting material to get to your product. So it's a techno-economic driver. 
However, if you look at some of the things that happened um, in the 80s, so for one of the big game changers was the very terribly tragic accident in Bhopal with a plant that exploded and toxic gas mm. released and a lot of people were injured and died. These kind of incidents sadly uh, seem to be required to prompt more safety and de-risking of the industry. So if you look back over over the last 45, 50 years, you'll see the industry has on one hand become very sensitive to techno-economics. So people who can't produce at the same competitiveness as others, eventually they're either going to get consolidated or or disappear. So industries naturally become more sustainable. And the industry has been very conscious of not wanting to have these kind of accidents. And so the industry's looked at ways to, to make safer products. And catalysts help there as well. As I said before, you know, you can get rid of corrosive chemicals and um, some toxic chemicals by using better catalysts. It's really fascinating. And I think one of the things that I remember us talking about before is that you said that you said earlier is that a lot of these catalysts uh, have been around for for years. We're not that hasn't changed. And it's whether it's is it how you use them and how you combine them to make them a bit more cleaner for the future? Because we can't how do we make it more sustainable when we've got it feels like we've got all our catalysts there. That's not going to change. Is it the way that they combine that makes it better for the future? So the catalysts are generally improved all the time. So um, if we look at how certain polymer materials are made, there was a big concern about the use of phthalate plasticizers in polymers. You often see things like baby bottles now that will say phthalate-free um, because they've had to change the chemicals that we use to soften plastics and make them more flexible. Um, some of them, there were large concerns about their toxicity to human health and big concerns about them being used in human contact applications. So they were banned under the European system called REACH, which involves kind of registering chemicals and having a dossier that looks at their toxicity. And that actually had a knock-on effect on catalysts because these liquid catalysts that I mentioned earlier on have a metal centre. They generally have a metal in the centre and they have things called ligands which kind of coordinate around the metal centre. And some of those ligands are kind of organic chemicals, you know, contain carbon, hydrogen, things like that. And um, they had phthalate ligands. And so actually the polymerization catalyst manufacturers had to get rid of the phthalate ligands to comply with um, being phthalate-free or certainly to change the type of phthalate that was used there. So catalysts have evolved quite a lot. Another, another good example is that some catalysts contain chromium, which is, compared to some other metals, a bit more toxic, um, especially when it's in what we call a certain oxidation state, so chromium-6. And um, the REACH legislation also said we want to ban chromium-6 containing goods. And so the catalysts that had any kind of chromium content that could be under the right conditions turned into chromium-6 were also replaced. And in doing that, when we replace a catalyst, we don't tend to just replace it because of its composition being unfavourable. We change it because it will produce more technically improved products um, and produce them more cheaply, produce them more sustainably. So, so every generation of catalyst that comes out is better than the previous ones and, and achieves more from an ESG perspective. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? We understand why certain products become banned from a consumer perspective. 
you know, the the the, the ligands um, product. Do you say phthalate? Phthalates. Phthalates. So it makes sense why why those shouldn't end up in a product. Chromium six. It makes sense why those shouldn't be exposed to you know to human consumption uh, or human interaction. But but actually, that they were part of a process rather than an end product. But a blanket ban removes them completely, um, which has knock-on effects to 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 industry. Do, do you think that the the approach should be so draconian when it comes to banning certain chemicals? I think that on its own, if that were the only reason, it might be questionable. It depends. If you look at something like lead in petrol. It was an excellent case for just getting rid of lead in petrol, even though actually it's really hard to get the same level of kind of technical benefit from any other thing that we put in to increase, you know, the oxygenate level and prevent the knocking. You know, we've had to work very hard on the rest of that vehicle to to avoid that. So sometimes there's just a really good case, even though the end result is technically not quite as good. In the catalyst industry, what we tend to do is say, right, we're getting rid of that because of perhaps partly due to legislation, let's take the opportunity to come up with something better. And so it's it's not such a problem then. And generally, I think very few chemicals are banned. If you look at the number of chemicals that have been registered under REACH, there are hundreds, many hundreds, and not that many have reached the level of being highly restricted. Mm. As a business that deals a lot in electronics, the next thing that we face on the horizon is PFAs. And legislation around these forever chemicals, a group of 10,000 chemicals. And it's quite interesting to see how different jurisdictions around the world are approaching. The, you know, how, how do we deal with that within industry? And some, some jurisdictions seem to be more pragmatic than others. But again, it's an example of a chemical that's not only used in an end product, but also used within processes. But the ban, where, where countries are banning them, is a blanket ban, process, product, the lot. These, these chemicals will be completely removed from, from industry. And it's one of these things where planning is so important that ideally the risk of those chemicals needed to be assessed at the beginning before they were introduced so um, widely and people be- came to depend upon them so strongly. And it's, it's what I sort of mentioned earlier that if you don't have a waste disposal de-risked plan in place at the beginning and you really shouldn't try to scale something up um, because now we end up in the same the same situation we are now. Um, we've had an, a ball, really, when it comes to hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. We made all these lovely plastics. You know, we've got mass production of clothes, textiles, consumer goods, everything. You look around you, everything has been made. Pretty much everything in this room will have been made from virgin fossil fuels. Um, there'll be a small amount of recycled content in some things, like I think I have a... A, hand, you know, a rucksack that's made from ocean plastic, um, which is great and makes me feel good. But largely, 95%, 98% of everything you see is going to be made from fossil fuels. Which um, is shocking, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. And the fact that that's not not going to change fast enough. But we, we, we had very good reasons for wanting to do it. We gave people what they wanted and needed. If you look at the sustainable development goals at the United Nations, there's 17 of them. And at least seven of those are aimed at things like hunger alleviation, poverty alleviation, gender equity, 
um, and all of those things, socioeconomic factors, you need to provide people who don't have anything, who are not starting from a position like, well, I'd like a new bathroom because I don't like the old one anymore. Um, they're starting from, well, we know we need a house and we need clothes and we need education for our children and we need healthcare and we need a form of transport and we need to stay warm. So they need some low cost kind of products. And there is some quite innovative products, isn't there, that yeah. can make quite good prefab houses and, and things like that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you're starting at a different position. So it is really challenging to balance all that to make it more sustainable yeah. for the future. So for me, we really need to start moving towards a situation where we can eliminate as much of the waste up front and we, we have to serve the needs of a growing population there's no two ways about that and one of the things that we need at the, at the top is renewable energy if you look at to come back to the carbon neutrality something like methanol is a good example made from coal and when you look at carbon neutrality the way it's generally expressed, for instance, is in tonnes of CO2 equivalent per tonne of product. And the reason why we say equivalent is because if you had a methane emission, you can calculate the equivalent CO2 greenhouse gas effect. So when you see the term CO2 equivalent, it includes, ideally includes not just the CO2, but the methane and any other greenhouse gases that were involved. And so one of the ways of assessing that is to look at the the CO2 equivalent emissions, if you make methanol from coal four tonnes per tonne, four tonnes CO2 equivalent per tonne, or two, maybe a bit lower, you know, come down towards sort of three. If you make it from gas, from natural gas, coming down to maybe two and, and below. And then if you look at what's been done in terms of improving the process from the engineering and the licences point of view. So to make to make methanol, you basically you take carbon monoxide and hydrogen and you run it over what's called a methanol synthesis catalyst. Improvements to the catalyst, improvements to the chemical engineering. The chemical engineering is super important. When you take all that into account, you start pushing down maybe to one and a half tonnes of CO2 equivalent. If you then do clever things like take the CO2 that's coming out of the methanol synthesis loop and route it back round and make that CO2 into methanol, you start introducing the chemistry CO2 to methanol. You're coming down even lower. You get to a technical limit at some point unless you get the natural gas completely out of the equation. But what you can do and what the chemical industry is doing and other manufacturing industries, one, they're using renewable utilities. So if you replace your fossil electricity to the plant with green electricity and you replace fossil gas with, for instance, biogas, then your carbon footprint comes down a lot further. And if you got rid of your natural gas reactant and you replaced it with just CO2 and hydrogen, then you're coming down even further. Carbon neutral is really hard to achieve. There's always going to be something that's there. So maybe you're getting down to 0.2 to 0.3 tonnes of CO2 equivalent per tonne. And that's where we, sh if you can achieve that, even though it's not neutral completely, it's it's extremely low carbon. And it's optimised. You've optimised yeah. the process yeah. to, to that position. Yeah. But to achieve any of these things, you need renewable electricity. And that's a big pinch point. So... We're seeing a kind of competition for green electrons now. And, you know, it's for me, it's very worrying that we would prioritise carbon capture and storage from natural gas as a strategy, the biggest part of our net zero strategy in the UK, um, instead of saying, no, let's just pile all the investment, let's go all out to get as much renewable electricity into this country and, and into other countries as possible. That involves 
things like mining. It does involve mining. We can't recycle what we haven't mined. It's a phrase from my colleague Hans-Erik Mellin in the battery sector. It's absolutely right. So we, we have to accept that initial round of getting the resources we need above ground, um, building that renewable electricity capacity, and then using that to bring down the carbon footprints of all kind of manufactured goods. So we, we've talked about strategy. We've talked about the long term, talked about consolidation. That is bigger than any one business, any one trade association can can really achieve uh, because we're talking about so many moving parts and we're talking about such a long-term game. Do you think governments, global governing bodies are doing enough? I think you mentioned this yourself about some people putting a blanket ban on a on a dangerous forever chemical and some not doing very much at all. It It varies and it is a big and important issue that we need to get all of the main global leaders to agree on a strategy. And strategy has to be different for each country because each country's got different efficient natural resources and they want to rely on what they have. So China has a lot of coal. Um, it's going to use it because it's got a billion plus people to to attend to it's, it's, it's going to use coal in countries where you have enormous amounts of land to farm and to have crops then you're perhaps going to be more oriented towards biomass so so not there isn't one size fits all but we still need and we i know that we have cop you know cop 26 or 27 where it's at now and we have climate goals that are translated internationally determine contributions ndcs but there's still this massive problem with not having a level playing field. You've got one major world country making products from coal. If you look at what happened with Russia, countries quite rightly want to, you know, to ban the use of Russian oil and gas. What happened to it? It was immediately sold to China and India. Um, so it, there, is, there isn't a level playing field. And it's, it's quite risky to try to decarbonize um, without a level level playing field. Because, for instance, it will be self-limiting. If you look at the solar industry, in the solar industry, like I said, we desperately need these green electrons. But most of the supply chain is in China. And that's fair enough because over the last 20 years, we created certain boundaries. First of all, we were just very happy for China to produce goods for us of all different kinds. We were very happy. We got them at a lower cost. It kept our inflation levels down. It kept us happy. Um, China built up an amazing amount of um, capacity and technology. The things the Chinese have done really well is they've invested in not just R&D and innovation. They've also invested in capacity. And so they're, they're experts and giants at, at lots of different industries. They make most of the components that you need for a solar PV. And we said, well, we don't want you dumping all your cheap goods now on Europe. So we created legislation which put 50% of the price onto, onto those imports. And then the European solar industry was disadvantaged because it can't produce with those additional costs on, on the imports of the raw materials. So now what we want to do is make the raw materials ourselves, And it's the same with batteries. And it's not so easy to catch up after 20 years of dropping the ball. It's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult problem to work out now. Do we just be pragmatic and accept that morally and ethically and all the other kind of ESG type issues which are involved in taking products from a country where we don't agree, we don't happen to agree with the way that governments operate things and limit our ability to decarbonize? 
Or do are we pragmatic and say, look, we'll gently push to say, right, we'd rather you didn't make it in a region where you have human rights abuses and we'd rather you didn't make it from coal, but have some sort of compromise that says, well, if we don't take it at all, then we won't reach our, we won't reach our net zero goals. We won't reach our sustainability goals. Um, There's so, got to be a transition, hasn't yeah. it? And a working together to get yeah. to that point and make, make those changes. Yeah. So it's, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating a uh, really fascinating discussion. So uh, you know, what what's on the horizon? Uh, we talked about fuel cells. We've talked about batteries. And and whilst both of those topics have been around for for years, you know, many, many years, particularly in terms of batteries, there there is a real drive around both of those at the moment. They're very hot topics. So I'd be curious to know what other hot topics you're encountering at the moment. So I think that the resource management side is seeing some really exciting new models, one of which is the repair economy, where we're having quite a few initiatives and companies involved in saying that we need to extend the life of products. And when you extend the life of products, you effectively displace the need for a brand new product. And that immediately cuts out the entire kind of carbon footprint and all the other life cycle factors needed to make that. And it's a growing trend. We have these organisations coming up around lots of cities and towns called repair cafes. There's actually one, a new one now where I live in Solihull and there are lots in London. And essentially you can take goods into them to be repaired. And it's a, it's a nice social thing to do. Children can learn how to repair electronics and how to repair other goods. I mean, you can repair lots of things. There's actually a really big market for repairing shoes that's a good example because we all need shoes and it's something that almost everyone on the planet or quite a big percentage of us wear. So if you can start repairing things, then you have some individual control over improving sustainability. And it's a much better model than this one I mentioned earlier, where we said, well, we can just have as many of as we want of that because it's carbon neutral. One of the, Just to kind of step in there, one of the other women in innovation on my cohort had a is growing a business called Library of Things and they're putting them in different communities in the libraries where people can just go and rent something that they just need to, I don't know, clean clean the floors or, or kind of clean the carpets or use tools and things like that. And I thought it's kind of along that message. Of Those like, things that you don't need yeah. every day, you just need once in a, once in a month, once in a year. One of, one of the things that just kind of popped in my head there was as I was thinking, how, how can you do that in, in industry? And, and one is uh, as a service, actually. And it's one thing that is starting to, to come out a little bit more in, in big industry. We're certainly thinking about about it as a sensing as a service industry where, you know, people can use the technology to get the data that they need, but then we can take that that technology back and use it somewhere else. And it's maybe that's one example, but I'd be interested to hear some others. Yeah, it's it's, it's something that um, this lease versus own um, kind of philosophy that is part of what I started to call sustainability 4.0. And it's interesting you mentioned sensors because clearly sensors and industry 4.0 are inextricably linked. And I think that sensing and making sure you understand where your resources that you've deployed are is very helpful. When you want to set up a repair economy, we need to understand, for instance, the history of a good. We need to look at how we can dissemble it. So it's it's very difficult to repair if you can't dissemble. So I think that having kind of 
a knowledge of, of how a piece of equipment's been made and how it can be repaired. And having that knowledge in the right place at the right time is helpful. Something like a catalyst, it's really difficult to lease because uh, we, we actually we're really interesting. We talked about this very topic at the Enabled Future Technology Day in London in November. It's knowing what's been put over it. People don't always put the right, you know, sometimes contaminants end up on there that shouldn't be on there. And it's it's very difficult then if you don't have the same ownership model. So it's not possible necessarily for industry like manufacturing industries to operate it completely. Where it is interesting is something like in the mobility sector and where you have cars that you don't own as an option rather than everybody having cars on their drive that just sit there all day. I mean, I haven't, haven't had a car for several years now because my neighbor walked up to me one day and said, you never use your car. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, not never. I use it occasionally. Um, he said, no, my friend, she hasn't got a car. She really needs a cheap car. She needs to get to work. Can she, can she buy it from you? So I was like, all right. So I sold the car and I haven't had a car since and it hasn't really made my life too difficult. You know, there's a few times when it might be a little bit more inconvenient. Not really. In fact, I find it quite liberating. I can read a book or I can do work on public transport. And I think that moving towards a model where we greatly improve the ability to share vehicles, whether that's an arrangement between someone who owns one, who's prepared to let somebody else share it with them, or we improve rideshare services so that they're more readily available, um, they're safer for everybody, and reducing the amount of things we actually make. And some people get concerned about this because they think it's part of kind of a degrowth agenda. And again, it only works if there's a level playing field. If, the, if people were very wealthy, decide they're going to have five of everything, it's not fair to expect some of us to have not own anything. And that, I don't think that's where we're going with it. I think where I'm going with it is that it's, it's targeted use of resources. It's not degrowth. It's saying, well, actually, we've got a million tonne deficit or whatever it is of lithium we can't we actually don't have enough lithium to make electric vehicles so what we're doing is saying we're alleviating the scarcity issue by saying what we do deploy we're going to use more pragmatically and we're going to make sure it's not sat there doing nothing 99% of the time so i think you know michelle thank you today for for the discussion i think we've we've covered such a rounded area of topics talking about carbon neutrality needing to look at the whole process as a the whole life cycle. We, we all interact with each other and all these different processes, and we have to be aware of that. And where, where is our kind of products and components systems going to end up? The complexities around this whole topic of chemicals, sustainability, have really come clear in what you've been saying. And I think it's, it's, it's so much more complex than the vast majority of society really appreciates i think uh, you know really you've you've encouraged us to to look much more into the the nuances behind these topics to fully understand what's what's going on so we can be you know not only better citizens on a consumer level but also really impact what we're doing as an industry as a business interacting with with trade unions trade bodies and indeed governmental organizations I think, you know, you've what you've talked about today impacts us all. We've talked about automotive, power, uh, even kind of marine and powering vessels. And I think, you know, understanding some of these topics and how it's going to affect sustainability in the future is, is just been really fascinating today. So, so thank you very much, Michelle, for that. 
Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I've very much enjoyed our discussion on these important topics. Thank you. Check out the show notes for more information and links to the topics of discussion today on Enabled Future Limited and Tribosonics. This episode of The Driving Force was brought to you by Tribosonics. Our next episode will welcome special guest Jackie Sutton, MBE, former Chief Customer Officer at Rolls-Royce Civil Aerospace. We'll be discussing key topics affecting the aviation sector, including sustainable aviation fuel. Until then, thank you for listening.